Please be seated. I encourage you to make your way to Genesis chapter 41. Genesis 41. It is the high calling of God's people to triumph over tragedy. God has not called us out of this world in order to preserve us from tragedy. If a person's quest is to avoid pain, to dodge suffering, to receive an exemption from tragedy and injustice, following Jesus Christ will provide nothing of use in this quest. Yet knowing Jesus Christ as Savior will preserve us certainly from certain painful consequences of sin. Yet our calling as God's people is not freedom from tragedy, but it is triumph through it and over it to the glory of God. Consider the Apostle Paul. You've read that passage, I'm sure, many times. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. He was imprisoned, he was flogged, he was beaten, stoned, shipwrecked. He spent a day and a night struggling to survive in the open sea. He faced the dangers of bandits and conspirators. He suffered betrayal, loneliness, hunger, thirst, nakedness, and unprecedented ridicule, hatred, and opposition. Yet this man could say with clear mind, thanks be to God who always leads us in triumphal procession in Christ. 2 Corinthians 2.14 To the believers in Rome he exclaimed, We are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. Triumph over tragedy, not freedom from it. This is the legacy of God's people, and this is the story of Joseph, ruthlessly sold into slavery by his own brothers, falsely accused of attempted rape, forgotten as an imprisoned foreigner in a subterranean Egyptian dungeon. Joseph continues to run headlong into the brick wall of injustice and oppression at every turn. This is a story of tragedy. But it is also a story of triumph. In God's providence and God's divine orchestration of the circumstances and events of Joseph's life, we watched in awe last week as Joseph was unexpectedly summoned from prison, shaved, dressed, and presented before the Pharaoh of Egypt. Depending on God alone, Joseph interprets Pharaoh's dream. There would be seven years of agricultural abundance in Egypt, followed by seven years of horrible famine. And then all those years of administrative preparation in Potiphar's house and in the warden's prison suddenly bore great fruit. As Joseph says to Pharaoh, notice chapter 41, and verse 33, 41, 33, And now let Pharaoh look for a discerning and wise man and to put him in charge of the land of Egypt. Chapter 41, verse 34, Let Pharaoh appoint commissioners over the land and take a fifth of the harvest of Egypt during the seven years of abundance. They should collect all the food of these good years that are coming and store up the grain under the authority of Pharaoh to be kept in the cities for food. This food should be held in reserve for the country to be used during the seven years of famine that will come upon Egypt so that the country may may not be ruined by the famine. The plan seemed good to Pharaoh and all his officials. So Pharaoh asked them, 
Can we find anyone like this man, one in whom is the Spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has made all this known to you, there is no one so discerning and wise as you. You shall be in charge of my palace. And all my people are to submit to your orders. Only with respect to the throne will I be greater than you. In verse 40, then, Pharaoh expresses his decision that Joseph will rule over Egypt. Beginning now at verse 41, Pharaoh expedites his decision with regard to Joseph, and we witness here again a triumph over tragedy. This is Joseph's coming and rising in importance in Egypt. We might say it's Joseph's meteoric rise to power in Egypt. You need to fill in the picture, the color to some degree. I'll strive to do that, but fill this in. Think of where Joseph has been. Think of what he has gone through for these past 13 years. And now it it is triumph over these great tragedies in his life. We find, first of all, beginning at verse 41, an investiture ceremony. Verses 41 through 43 reflect a public ceremony in which Joseph is formally recognized as prime minister in Egypt. See the picture there in your mind's eye. There stands Joseph with shoulders square, breathing the air of freedom for the first time in 13 years. I'm sure that it was a sensory experience. There were probably instruments that were playing in this ceremony. There was probably incense that was being burned. People were dressed in their finest to demonstrate that they were part of Pharaoh's inner circle. They have all gathered here on this day of unprecedented triumph over past tragedy for this man, Joseph. Now that now what we read here in the text in these verses should strike would, it would strike the ancient reader something like they might strike us if we heard or maybe we read in the newspaper a reference to a swearing-in ceremony, and you skim down through the article and you read about a ticker tape parade followed by a state ball. Those kinds of phrases in our English language, they they would just strike up an immediate understanding that this is a public ceremony. Now what we read here doesn't strike us that way necessarily because we're in a very different culture and time. But in the ancient environment, those reading this passage would say this is an investiture ceremony. This is a, a place where a man is put in position officially. And all of these aspects that we look at here would indicate that. Uh, to, to them. We find, first of all, in verse 41, Pharaoh's official pronouncement. And we might, I, I don't know here, of course, it's not revealed to us, and history doesn't keep it alive, but we might picture here, for instance, Pharaoh standing in his palace before many people there that are here to witness Joseph's rise and making this pronouncement, verse 41. So Pharaoh said to Joseph, I hereby put you in charge of the whole land of Egypt. We've already read that in the text, right? That's what verse 40 said. But here is an official pronouncement in this formal ceremony. Verse 42, we read, Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his finger and put it on Joseph's finger. In the culture of that day, a signet ring was of vast importance. It's hard to overestimate it. A unique artistic seal was engraved in a precious metal, usually gold or silver, sometimes in stone, and was, was rolled as a cylinder, but uh, the impression in that stone or in that metal would be used as a stamp, and it served something like a combination of a signature and a social security number would serve in our day. 
So they would just take this ring and maybe put it in ink and stamp it on a, on a document. And that was their signature, social security, everything that they were was uh, identified in that stamp. When an official decision or transaction was made, uh, it might be pushed in ink, it might be stamped in hot uh, wax, but it's, in some respects this ring would stand for the person uh, who bore the ring. Signet rings were so important that engravers were required to keep a register of every seal that they cut. And then if someone lost their ring, they'd come back to the engraver and say, I've lost my ring, it's been stolen, or I can't find it somewhere. That engraver was responsible to make an identical ring with one exception. It would have a different date on it. Then it was the owner's responsibility to communicate with all of his connections, whoever that was, to say, if you find my signet stamp and it has this date on it, it's invalid. If it has this date on it, it's valid. You can imagine they didn't want to lose this ring. This was something very important to them, something they held on to at any cost. Sometimes it was on, a, on an armband. Sometimes it was on uh, a ring that they wore on their finger. Sometimes it was on a cylinder that hung from a cord, as we found with, uh, with Judah in an earlier passage, chapter 38. But in some way, they had this, this identification of their authority. So important were these uh, rings and these stamps that if someone was found making one, a forging one, a counterfeit stamp, the penalty in Egypt at that time was to cut off both of their hands. And not too many people took that kind of a risk. And if an engraver was found to be dishonest and was somehow using his trade and manipulating, it would cost him his life. With that little bit of background, we don't understand all of those things, with that little bit of background, can you imagine? Here is the Pharaoh of Egypt taking off his ring. This is not a signet ring, but <laughs> taking off his ring and putting it on Joseph's finger. This is the Pharaoh's authority. This stands for all that, that Pharaoh is, and this stands for his power. Joseph can act in behalf of Pharaoh. See, he bears this ring upon his hand, literally we would assume perhaps upon his finger, depending on what type of ring it was. This was a day of great triumph for Joseph. Not only the ring, but also following through with ancient protocol, there was a robe. Verse 42, the second part of the verse, he dressed him in robes of fine linen and put a gold chain around his neck. There's a parallel there, isn't there, with Daniel, who has the same experience. Joseph had received a special robe as a status symbol from his father. What happened to that robe? It was torn off of him by his jealous brothers. A robe comes into play again in the Joseph narrative. He was given a robe as the steward of Potiphar's house. And what happened to that robe? It also was torn off of him by Potiphar's lustful wife. Once again now, Joseph is robed in a tunic adorned with a gold chain, marking him as a high official in Pharaoh's court. It is a day of grand triumph. This robe will stay. Joseph has risen to great power. Following again with the ancient protocol, verse 43, he receives a chariot ride. He had him ride in a chariot as his second in command, and men shouted before him, Make way! Thus he put him in charge of the whole land of Egypt. The Hebrew text is difficult to translate on two accounts here. First of all, the phrase second in command, and you probably see some marginal alternatives there, uh, and also the word to make way. There's no knowledge of the exact meaning of the word. 
you see the marginal note might be to bow down. We don't know exactly what this means, but the Egyptians did. Believe me, these, this was a sign of great authority. Through the crowded streets, think about it here, ancient setting, without lanes or painted lines or street signs or stoplights, official chariots were given right of way as official runners proceeded and yelled, make way, it's the king's chariot, it's some official's chariot, and they could get bogged down on the streets and be unable to get to where they needed to go, and so they would yell, and it was every citizen's responsibility to to step aside and in many occasions to bow down to that chariot as it passed. It might be roughly equivalent in our day to a, an official motorcade that is carrying a public official in a convertible or something, but they're driving down and, and there's, uh, you, what we would have is generally uh, mount, uh, police that are on uh, motorcycles or sometimes even on horses clearing the way and making way. That's the idea here. Joseph is receiving this type of treatment 13 years ago, think about it, the irony of it, the, the beauty of it all, the triumph of it. Joseph rode into this town in a trader's caravan as an insignificant slave from lowly Canaan with no rights in Egypt at all. Now he rides through town in the king's chariot as the second most powerful man in the entire nation. No one noticed him when he came into town. Now no one has a choice but to see Joseph and acknowledge him. For the first few years he had lived below ground, or for the last few years he had lived below ground like a rat in a sewer hole. Today he rides tall in Pharaoh's chariot and people stop and pay homage. And as verse 43 says, along with that he is put in charge of the whole land of Egypt. Now notice that phrase there, you, you might see, have, have caught there, we just read that. We did just read that. In verse 41, what happens there is what is referred to as a frame. We're to understand these, these verses go together. So it says in verse 41, I put you in charge of the whole land of Egypt. And then down in verse 43 at the end, it says, so he was in, put in charge of the whole land of Egypt. What that does for us is just give us a snapshot of this investiture ceremony, this time where Joseph is promoted officially in Pharaoh's court. Not long after this ceremony, as we move down through it, beginning at verse 44, we notice that Joseph's triumph becomes even more complete as there is a confirming commission here in verse 44. Then, and that then marks off a new section, a new time. We don't know how much time has passed. But then Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, but without your word no one will lift hand or foot in all of Egypt. This is obviously a figure of speech saying that Joseph has virtually absolute authority. Only Pharaoh stands above him in all of Egypt. Now what's happening in all of this? What well, we have to see this, how, how does Pharaoh do this for Joseph? Why does, what motivates him to do this? We have to see all of this in light of Joseph's interpretation of Pharaoh's dream in this chapter, earlier in this chapter. We need to go back also probably to verse 38 of this chapter where Pharaoh says, can we find anyone like this man, one in whom is the Spirit of God or the Spirit of the gods? We don't know how, exactly what he meant there, but he sees that this man has, a unique pre, has the unique presence of God operating in his life. There's something that is unique about him. That's what Pharaoh is seeing in Joseph. He's not just foolishly putting this slave in charge of all of Egypt, but he realizes there's something special in this man. 
God has brought him here for a particular reason, and he gives him great confidence. He also gives him here a new name. Verse 45, Pharaoh gave Joseph the name Zaphonath-Paneah and gave him Asenath, daughter of Potipharah, priest of On, to be his wife. And Joseph went throughout all the land of Egypt. Let's take those phrases one by one. First of all, a name. This is bestowing upon Joseph an official Egyptian name. It's a new status and position in Egypt for Joseph. The days as a slave are over. Now he is Zaphonath Panea, the prime minister of Egypt. But there is more here than meets the eye. Who's been renamed in the book of Genesis? Who have we seen renamed? We've seen Abram, right, to Abraham. Who else? We've seen Jacob to Israel, right? Now we have Joseph with a new name. Now this name is downplayed because it's not given by God, but it's interesting that there is a renaming also here of Joseph. And I think it parallels Abram and Jacob in the sense that we have here a patriarch of Israel who receives a new name as a symbol of divine blessing. Receiving this name does say that Joseph has been uniquely chosen and used and blessed by God. Notice that the name is not interpreted in the text, indicating that it's meaningless as far as Moses is concerned, the author of the text. It serves only to evidence Joseph's triumph in Egypt. He receives a new name. He receives also here a wife, verse 45, Asenath, daughter of Potiphar, a priest of On, or as you see in probably a marginal note, Heliopolis, the sun city. We have to understand that this is the center of the Pharaoh cult the sun city, Heliopolis. Thus, Potiphar is a high-ranking official in the cult and in Egypt. This marriage to Asenath then elevates Joseph to the ranks of Egyptian nobility. This does for Joseph something that the name and the responsibilities do not even accomplish. Through this marriage, he is linked permanently to nobility in Egypt. He has official status. An Egyptian name a responsibility before Pharaoh and now an Egyptian wife. Context, 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 right? We've got to always remember context because I see a few of you have, have uh, elevated eyebrows when you read that. How does he marry the priest, a pagan priestess or the daughter of a pagan priest? How, how does that work? How do we understand that? Is Joseph right for doing this? Should he have refused this wife? Context. Prior to the, this is prior to the Mosaic law prohibiting marriage with pagans. Deuteronomy chapter 7 would say that this was wrong. Deuteronomy 7 was not in existence when Joseph made this decision. There is, secondly, no nation of Israel from which to draw a wife. And so he could not be expected to take a wife from the people of Israel. We must also remember that Joseph's own mother, Rachel, worshipped idols, and so do all of us at times. The point here is that in the context of Genesis, you either take a Canaanite wife or a non-Canaanite wife. Understanding the strong patriarchal uh, process in that day, Asenath would have been expected to follow the religion of her husband and would have submitted to that to some degree. We don't know if it was necessarily a heart issue. There are Jewish, uh, there's Jewish uh, tradition that says that she did embrace 
Yahweh is the one and only God. But it's a different day. It's a different situation. We need to keep that in mind. In fact, we really see, if we're looking at it contextually, we really see here a connection between Joseph and Isaac and Joseph and Jacob, both of whom took a wife that was not a Canaanite. He is distinguishing himself here, though not to say that he does this purposefully or that he could possibly choose this course. He does distinguish himself here from, say, an Esau who takes wives that are Canaanites. So with all that in mind, this is not a passage to justify marriage to an unbeliever today. Context is the issue. We have divine revelation, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, that says we should not marry an unbeliever. And so that's all that we need to consider there. But secondly, if we really see what is happening here in Joseph's life, it is an argument for marrying believers in its own unique way. Again, in the sense that he does not marry a Canaanite in God's leading. It's a different day, it's a different time. It does not speak to us as to whom we should marry, but Joseph does marry this this woman. And again, this marks then a triumph over tragedy. Think of that wedding day. That must have been amazing. We're talking here about the second most powerful man in the land of Egypt, marrying the daughter of one of the other most powerful men in Egypt, the priest at Heliopolis. It had to be an amazing ceremony. No holds barred, certainly. But think of what's going on in Joseph's heart in that ceremony. I can't imagine that somewhere that day didn't play through his mind Potiphar's wife. He had resisted the lure of Potiphar's wife, the lure of a wealthy woman with all the cosmetic and hygienic benefits Egypt could provide, whatever her natural beauty we don't know. But there may have certainly been at that time a temptation in his heart that was hard to imagine. Here is a connected woman. Here is power. Here is pleasure. I will never, ever be married. But God was all along preserving Joseph for a woman who also had great wealth, every cosmetic and hygienic benefit, whatever her natural beauty. But there was a difference She was a virgin, and she was his wife. What joy Joseph must have experienced as he lay with his new bride, free of guilt. What vindication, what triumph, what reward. Well, there's obviously a great danger in all of this, isn't there? A danger in Joseph's rise to power. He might choose a path of ease and entitlement at this place. He might choose to relax, to party away his days, to gloat in his powerful position while bitterness continued to drip its polluting poison into his spirit. But we find something very different as the text unfolds. We have seen Joseph's meteoric rise to power in Egypt. We notice secondly, beginning at verse 46, Joseph's faithful service to Egypt. And the years of abundance are described here in verses 46 to 49. Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from Pharaoh's presence and traveled throughout Egypt. 37.2 tells us that Joseph was 17 years old when he fell into conflict with his brothers back in Palestine. So he has spent some 13 years in slavery. Now he is 30 years old. 
He's been prepared by his time in Potiphar's house in the warden's prison. He's now prepared, poised to invest his remarkable administrative skills in the service of Egypt. And he goes to work, as verse 46 makes clear. He travels throughout Egypt. Verse 47, during the seven years of abundance, the land produced plentifully. Joseph collected all the food produced in those seven years of abundance in Egypt and stored it in the cities. In each city, he put the food grown in the fields surrounding it. Joseph stored up huge quantities of grain like the sand of the sea. It was so much that he stopped keeping records because it was beyond measure. Joseph believed God's word revealed in the dreams to Pharaoh. Remember back at verse 29. Seven years of great abundance. Verse 30. Seven years of famine will follow. Then all the abundance of Egypt will be forgotten and the famine will ravage the land. Joseph could have sat at ease He could have protected his own home. He could have been negligent, but he went to work to save Egypt. He was God's chosen vessel to do so. He's convinced there's a coming famine. And so he taxes the Egyptians, stores the tax grain for later. Perhaps the people of Egypt were incapable of providing storage for themselves. A seven-year storage would have been certainly considerable. Perhaps that was impractical. Certainly, it would not have allowed for Egypt to feed other people down the road. But it's probably also true that few of the Egyptians would have really trusted the dream for seven long years of great fertility. They probably would have lacked the discipline to prepare diligently. Joseph did not lack that discipline. And so, yes, there is a place for government. There is a place and a function that it can fulfill. And, it does, and Joseph does so admirably here. He was a gifted administrator. What does that mean? Drawing from our discussion last week, he knew how to utilize the resources of people, the farmers, possessions, the grain, and time, the present years of abundance, with a discipline fueled by future anticipation, the coming years of famine. So Joseph serves God by serving the people of Egypt with skill and with disciplined insight. And in the end, the Egyptians will recognize that he single-handedly saved their lives. I don't have time, I don't want to take time here to go to consider the application to our work as people and even to those who have served our country. But there is certainly an application there to work hard for the advancement of the culture in which we find ourselves. It's a legitimate employment and we should give ourselves to it as long as we can do so without compromise of our God-given responsibilities and convictions. These years of fertility were not realized, however, only in the field. They were also realized in Joseph's own home. So we find, thirdly, Joseph's, Joseph's male offspring in Egypt, beginning at verse 50 down through verse 52. Before the years of famine came, Two sons were born to Joseph by Asenath, daughter of Potiphar, a priest of On. Joseph named his firstborn Manasseh and said, It is because God has made me forget all my trouble and all my father's household. Manasseh. The naming of Hebrew children, as we are aware, was a very significant matter. The Hebrew word here is connected to Uh, The name here is connected to the Hebrew word to forget. And he says here in response that God made me forget. 
The Hebrew could be read, God actively caused Joseph to forget. It's significant that Joseph gives Manasseh and will later give Ephraim a Hebrew name. What does that indicate to you? He's not forgotten his home. He's not forgotten his identity as the chosen seed of Abraham. He's not forgotten the promise of the land of Canaan, the land of the Hebrews, as he called it in chapter 40. What he has forgotten is specifically my trouble and all my father's household. That might be taken together as all the trouble in my father's household. That's what he's forgotten. Now, there's great significance here. As Joseph held that little boy in his arms, he realized that a story had come full circle. He had, be, he had overcome tragedy with triumph. This baby boy was God's tool to wash away the evil memories of all that Joseph had suffered at the hands of his brothers. He held that boy in his arms, looked into his sleeping face, and realized that what God had wrought through all the suffering perpetuated by his brother's wickedness. Now, does the text mean that Joseph lost the memory of his brothers? Obviously not, right? It cannot mean that. Why, why can it not mean that? He names his son forget. Every time he thinks of the word, he's going to forget what? He's not forgetting in the sense that it's canceling out of his memory. He's forgetting in another sense. This, and the story will bear this out. Joseph has forgotten his past suffering in the sense that God's present blessings have superseded his past. Those injustices can no longer compare with the joy of God's grace operating in his life right now. He sees the son and he says, God has made me forget. He can never be bitter again. He can never be angry with his brothers again. He can never be vengeful. By the way, I think that'll bear out in the future. Yes, he expresses anger in his brother's presence. I don't think it's vengeful anger at all. And we'll see that as we come to the end of the book, Lord willing. But he, had, he has washed away my suffering with his grace. That's what Joseph is saying here. Now there's a profound truth here. I hope that we can tag into it. I hope that you will. I pray that God will allow us as a church to grasp it. It's here in seminal form. I think it is developed in the New Testament more clearly. But do you know the joy of forgetting past suffering? Do you know the joy of freedom from past injuries and injustices? We are stuck in a rut as a culture. And the rut that we are stuck in is that people are living under the weight of past injustices. No matter what they do, they cannot shake themselves free, and many Christians are joining them. There's a lot of suffering that goes on in a culture such as ours. It's not direct persecution type of suffering, but there's other types of suffering. People suffer dramatically because of divorced parents. People suffered dramatically because of teasing and ridicule and embarrassment because they didn't add up intellectually or socially or financially. People continued to suffer as adults even the results of sexual abuse, of an alcoholic parent, of things that just fell apart in their life, of circumstances they could not control. There are, there are means of suffering in the present because of past experiences. Day after day, such past suffering can fill a person with bitterness, 
with confusion, with insecurity, with depression. And it does so all the time. And it is in our culture encoded in the very essence of what we are, and it might be illustrated in the path of psychology. The goal of psychology, whatever form you want to call it, the goal is to emphasize past suffering, to dredge it up, to refer to the past, to explain why people do what they do. Past suffering is the reason that you're bitter. Past suffering is the reason that you're confused. It's the reason that you're insecure. It's the reason that you're depressed. It's the reason that you cannot control your anger or lust or compulsive behaviors. The problem, however, is always put in terms of description, never in terms of solution. Psychologists, our world and its way and its bent can always tell you why you do what you do. And sometimes with great insight, but they never solve anything because they keep you set in what you suffered in the past and they never bring you out of that muck. Now, I know it's seminal form, but that's exactly what Joseph did not do. He's saying here as he holds this infant son, it's in the past. I've overcome it. The grace of God has washed it clean. Clean from his memory so he can never recall it again? No, he names his son forget. But he's washed clean through the grace of God. What happens is that Joseph saw his life from God's perspective. He realized that the grace of God can take that trauma and can cleanse it. He saw the blessings of God in the present and chose to focus there instead of the past. And we need to do the same. We can all find people who have wronged us, and we can find reasons to be bitter, etc. We need to move forward. Well, there's a great objection here. I, I need to tackle it because many, it comes to mind. It comes to almost any mind. Anybody here that you work with that doesn't know Christ as Savior, they're going to raise the objection, and it'll probably go something like this. Well, make me the commissioner of the most powerful nation on earth. Give me wealth and a well-connected mate, and I'd forget all my suffering, too. You don't understand. I continue to suffer. And I, my answer to that would be, no, you wouldn't. You wouldn't get over it. Not if you're talking like that. Joseph enjoyed blessings we will never enjoy, undoubtedly. But Joseph could have just as easily as any one of us permitted bitterness and a vengeful spirit to steal his joy. The one thing that his blessings did not take away was what his brothers did to him. You can be the wealthiest, most connected, most prosperous man on the earth, and that past experience can, can drip, continue to drip its poison in your spirit, and you will never, ever be free of it through earthly means. Do you realize what a position Joseph's in? He rules Egypt. Should he want to, he could very easily take care of his brothers. and Probably everyone else that has done him wrong along the way. He could start working behind the scenes. He may not be able to do it up front, but he could start working on Potiphar's wife. He could take vengeance, but he doesn't. Instead of looking to the past and plotting his vengeance, being filled with bitterness, he holds up his infant son 
and he says, God has made me forget. He becomes focused on the blessing and the goodness of God. You remember last week that I said suffering is a path to maturity only if we handle it properly. Joseph handled it properly. Joseph gained this ground because he suffered well. By contrast, many Christians become fixated on past suffering and they remain blinded to all that God has done and is doing in the present. And our culture, our whole way of thinking is going to take your head and it's going to twist it down into your gut and it's going to say, look inside of all that you suffered in the past. God takes our face and he lifts our chin forward and he says, let's go. Let's forget those things that are behind and let's press forward to the things that lie before. Let's count our blessings as that song says and become so enthralled with the grace of God that the suffering of the past is left in the dust. Now I speak also here obviously to this setting and you who are here dressed, well-fed, housed, in a comfortable environment. I realize there's different places and the discussion may need to take a different course. But there are people who have nothing. I saw a picture this week of four boys. One had no clothes because there were no clothes. The other one had a shirt and one had pants. And another, somehow, he must have been the stronger of the four, but he had a shirt and pants. They, you know, people run out of clothes in this, in this world. I mean, they flat out run out of clothes. There's no more threads to hang off of their body and their stomachs are swollen and with, with hunger, and there are people who run through their villages and rape and maim and torture and kill. You know what the preachers are saying in those environments? Look forward. Look ahead to the hope of Jesus Christ. And you know what? There's Christians in those environments who are doing just that. They're rejoicing. How can we do anything else? It's not to minimize the suffering that we may have endured at the hands of other people in the past, but it's to say there's only one way to deal with it, and it's to allow the grace of God in the present and our relationship with him and the future hope that we have to supersede all that's taken place in the past. Joseph has forgotten all of the wrong that's been done to him. Thirteen years as a slave from 17 and maybe 18 to 30 years of age as a slave. It's gone. His next son is Ephraim. Verse 52, the second son he named Ephraim and said, it is because God has made me fruitful in the land of my suffering. Where is he looking? Looking at the present. He's looking at what God has done. He doesn't look to the past again. He does not look back in bitterness he does not allow himself to become consumed with getting even with his brothers. His focus is on the present and he sees the grace of God. Now think about those two names together. Manasseh points to how he views the past in light of the present. I've let it go. I'm at peace. I have forgotten. Ephraim points to how he sees the present. God has enriched me. He looks at what God is doing in his life right then. He doesn't take on the past difficulties and make them and bring them into the present time, but he looks to the present and he looks for the grace of God in the situation 
where he finds himself, and he says, God has enriched me. And even people in abject poverty, suffering untold horrors in other parts of this world, have this in common with us. They know God. They have a relationship with him that is rich and full and real. That's where Joseph is centered. The naming of his children makes it clear that he remains loyal to his God. Success does not steal his faith. His heart belongs to the Lord whose sovereign hand he's come to trust. This retelling of the prosperity of Joseph's family serves nicely as a natural divide between the abundant years in Egypt and the years of famine. We go quickly to those years of famine. Joseph's continued service in Egypt, the years of famine, verse 53, the seven years of abundance in Egypt came to an end, and the seven years of famine began, just as Joseph had said. There was famine in all the other lands, but in the whole land of Egypt there was food. <clears throat> well, it's all set up now. God has ordained famine for numerous nations in order to get one family into Egypt, the family of Jacob. Think about that for a moment. A lot of suffering to move one family there. That's God's purposes. Nobody notices the family of Jacob in this famine-stricken world. But God's people are the apple of his eye. They're at the epicenter of every world event. And he's moving Jacob's family to Egypt. Verse 55, when all Egypt began to feel the famine, the people cried out to Pharaoh for food. Then Pharaoh told all the Egyptians, go to Joseph and do what he tells you. Literally, the text reads, when she was famished, all the land of Egypt. It's almost as if the people in the land itself were dying for lack of food. With utmost confidence in Joseph, though, Pharaoh sends the people to his second-in-command. Like Potiphar before him, Pharaoh has entrusted everything into Joseph's hand. And Joseph was a man of great prominence in those years of plenty but nothing like he will become in these years of famine when people begin to recognize how he has been used to save lives. This wasn't Pharaoh's idea. There wasn't some interpreter of dreams in Pharaoh's court who came to him one day and came up with this idea. There was no prophecy, no prediction. The entrails of the birds that they cut up all the time never pointed in this direction. There was one man in the whole world who could take responsibility for this deliverance, and that was Joseph. And everyone comes to realize it. More on that later. But verse 57, all the countries came to Egypt to buy grain from Joseph because the famine was severe in all the world. In all the world, I think the idea there, in all the places as it appears in various places in the Old Testament, everywhere that they understood, the world of their setting, of their time. Was there famine over every square inch of the earth? Perhaps it's possible, but I don't know that that's necessary by this word. It's just saying that the world as they conceived it, their area, their region, their situation, there was no one to trade with to get food. That's the point. Over the whole world, Joseph's interpretation of Pharaoh's dreams have come true. There are no doubters now, but it is now time for Joseph's own dreams. In chapter 37, remember those dreams? They haven't come true yet. The bowing down of his brothers and his father, his mother, they haven't come true yet. Verses 56 and 57 are, of course, the bridge to that fulfillment. 
Not only does Egypt suffer famine, severe famine, verse 56. There's a tiny stretch of land to the north and east that is also suffering. It's called Canaan. As Joseph rules in Egypt, his father and brothers are running out of food in Palestine. And Joseph's dreams are about to be realized. So as we close out this chapter and prepare, Lord willing, next week to look into chapter 42, let me say this just briefly. A few thoughts and we'll be done. It is the high calling of God's people to triumph over tragedy. Let that lodge in your brain. May that direct the way you think about life, to triumph over tragedy. Yes, there's a cavernous gap, I realize, between you and Joseph. But in other respects, we share a very similar experience as God's people. Like Joseph, we too have a revelatory message from God about the future which can fuel our confidence in God's sovereignty and give us hope for the future. Jesus said, in my Father's house are many dwelling places. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go, I will come again. We will be with Him in heaven. There's His promise. There's His word about the future. We too will experience triumph over tragedy. It may be here in this life. I think that many times it is here in this life and we don't recognize it. But certainly as we approach heaven, there's a day of triumph over tragedy for each of us as believers. We too have an investiture ceremony in our future. And that heavenly investiture will far exceed anything that Joseph could have ever imagined. Revelation 3, verses 4 and 5, John writes to the church at Sardis, and he says that there are a few who have not, quote, spoiled or soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out his name from the book of life, but will acknowledge his name before my Father in and, and his angels. As Joseph's enjoyment of his blessings were enhanced by the memory of all that suffering, remember this, those who have suffered deeply. Your enjoyment of heaven will be enhanced by what you've endured here. There will be a new apprehension of the glories of God in heaven. As Paul said to the Corinthians, we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and will present us with you in his presence. We will stand in ceremony before the God of the universe. Therefore, says Paul later in the book, we do not lose heart. This is the Paul who suffered shipwreck and assassination plots and beatings and whippings and stoning. We don't lose heart. We don't lose heart in any of this. This is the Paul who suffered physically. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. We don't lose heart. What does he say? For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. We may languish here in a prison of suffering. If we're clear-sighted, however, most of us will acknowledge that God pours unusual stores of grace upon us day after day after day. We need to see it and to rejoice. But whatever the case, there awaits for us a grand day when we will be presented 
not before a peon pharaoh ruling an earthly power that would soon crumble, but before the ruler of the universe. And until that day comes, it's my prayer, may it be our prayer, that God finds us praising him for his grace and triumphing over tragedy. This is something we can do if heaven is real to us and if our faith in God's word remains strong. So let's pray for one another that God will empower us to the end. Let's bow for prayer.